This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Kevin Lindsay. I have the pleasure of co-hosting with Tom Schult, the Systems and Cybernetics podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm recording this in September 2021, the month Stafford Beer would have turned 95, so it's extra significant that I got the opportunity to visit with his daughter, Vanilla Beer, about her book on his life, Stafford Beer, The Father of Management Cybernetics. Born Anthony Stafford Beer in London in 1926, Beer had an undeniable impact on what cybernetics was to become. According to Ramage and Ship in their book Systems Thinkers, Beer's single greatest contribution to systems thinking was the creation of management cybernetics, the basis of which was his strong belief that both commercial organizations and society as a whole needed to be more flexible and able to change. This belief led Beer to develop the viable systems model, which is based on the principle of recursion, that In Beer's words, any viable system contains and is contained in a viable system. VSM continues to be used widely. When I spoke to Ms. Beer, she was in lockdown in her studio in France, where she is currently working on a new commission. As she told me, COVID lockdowns were giving her plenty of time to get work done. In addition to her beautiful comic book style Stafford Beer biography we discuss in the conversation, Vanilla has recently published a collection of her recent works entitled Saints in Paint, a meditation by Vanilla Beer. In our discussion, Vanilla shares personal memories about what it was like growing up in a beer home and reflects on his contributions, including his work in Chile, that had a profound impact on his life and mental health. I so enjoyed this lovely conversation with Vanilla Beer, and I hope you enjoy listening to it too. Thank you. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay, co-host of the Systems and Cybernetics podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, it's my pleasure to be in conversation with Vanilla Beer about her 2019 book, Stafford Beer, The Father of Management Cybernetics. Vanilla Beer is an English artist. She trained at the West Surrey School of Art and Design and Walthamstow College of Art in London. Her first major solo show was at Gallery 181, curated by Alan Hayden in 1983. Her first major installation was commissioned by John Gill for the Royal Festival Hall in 1984. And Vanilla Beer has been a part-time lecturer at Lewisham College and Greenwich University, as well as at the Sorbonne and Cité University in Paris. She served as a reviewer for the art book from 1997 to 2000. She was elected fellow of the Printmakers Council in 1984, holder of the Artscape Fellowship 1991-92. She won the GLC Peace Prize in 1983, Mail on Sunday Award 1991, Russell and Chapel Painting of the Month, November 1996, Ray Finnis Award 1997 and the 2018 Award, I don't even know how to say this one, the Pit du Jury 
Art uh, Marie in France. Is that okay? <laughs> All right. And of course, Vanilla has produced many uh, books that are amazing, beautiful uh, representations of her work, her collections. But this is really her first book, and we're going to be talking about it. Vanilla currently lives in the south of France and is one of Stafford Beer's, Beer's eight children. Hello, Vanilla, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, Kevin. It's nice to talk with you. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you for joining me from from France. Um, so first of all, I want to congratulate you on this beautiful book. And because this is a podcast, it, it's really hard to convey uh, just in words, but we'll try um, to, to really describe this book. It is effectively a comic book. And um, I love comic books. I love graphic novels. I'm a huge fan of, of, of this, uh, this format. And I think you've done an amazing job of, of describing your father's life and kind of what led him into cybernetics and the impact that that had. And uh, yeah, I just, I was really excited to talk to you about this book. So thank you for joining me here today. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I'm delighted you like it. I mean, it, it's quite a difficult, it's a, it's a format that, that I don't know how it translates to adults. You know, you do it for kids, of course, um, adult, sophisticated adults like like graphic novels. But this is something else. And it only came about because um, it became clear that, that people found it quite hard to read Stafford's books. And heaven knows why. I mean, they are so simple. He says what he means and he he means it clearly. But, but I think it's quite intimidating to pick up a, a big boy's book, as it were. <clears throat> so this, this arose out of conversations with friends who all of us wanted the, the, particularly the viable system model, the VSM, that Stafford is so well known for. We all felt that that belonged in the, in the purlieu of children. It's so simple. So then, you know, obviously, cartoon book becomes an idea to 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 get that one across. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's my first attempt at cartoon. I, I wasn't um, keen to take it on, as you can imagine. But there we have it. Well, I, it's it would be very ambitious, certainly with 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 a topic like cybernetics and obviously the body of work that that Stafford represents, um, you know, trying to capture that, you know, I can, I could feel the, maybe the trepidation, you feel like there's a little bit of a risk. And are, are you doing, you know, justice to the work by representing it in, in this format? Exactly. Well, what I remembered, though, was that Stafford always explained his work in a very um, particular context, in the context of his own experiences. So, for instance, the uh, University of John Moore's University in Liverpool, they have a collection of his lectures for that for a whole course in cybernetics. So I went through that, and they all have this um, focus on where the ideas emerged, what he was doing, and where. So I thought the obvious thing to do is to work through his life. A bit of interest, anyway. But there he is, and then at this moment, he has this experience which he can translate into this faction faction i forget my english my how do you say uh, fraction perhaps of the vsm yeah right you you know so what i mean by, sorry the, the, i'm I, saying vsm I, I, 
a viable systems model. And so, of course, um, you know, let's go into the book in a little bit more detail in, in just a in just a moment. But I want to say a couple of things, and I'm glad that you you know you um, asked me to spell that out. Um, but it is worth uh, pointing out that a lot of the listeners on this channel will be familiar with Stafford Beer and and his work and his influence. Um, I'm I'm guessing that a lot of the listeners are. Um, you know, really deep into systems thinking and, and cybernetics, and um, but are quite intrigued by the person, the man, um, and and really the, the the story. And so we'll get into that in in just a moment for sure. But I'd like to actually start by hearing a little bit more about you. Um, you're an artist. Uh, you know, you've been um, as I indicated in the introduction, very busy and and uh, accomplished. Um, but I'd love to hear a bit more of your story and, um, and, and really understand, you know, what is your relationship with, with cybernetics and, and the work of your father and, you know, whether it's affected your life and, and, and your work. Um, yeah, just maybe chat about that for a few minutes. Well, that, that's a very big story. Um, Stafford, he, he was, I have to say, a wonderful father, first of all. He, he believed that his generation and, of course, the generation ahead of him had really screwed things up, and he expected my generation to be better, not to repeat everything that they did and not to repeat the stuff of his fathers. So he never taught us anything except the broad brush stuff, you know. He was extremely keen that we understood how systems worked. So, for instance, as a little girl, I wanted some fish. <laughs> you can have fish, but you have to know how to feed them. You have to know how to clean up their thing. You have to learn about uh, yeah, yeah, potassium permanganate. There was no, um, here's a fish. <laughs> how does this system fish work, and where does it slot into the rest of the world? And and all our lives were like that. You know, There was no question of... of um, any anything terribly simple. If you asked him a question, as of course we did as children, he always replied with another one. Um, he called this the Socratic method, which now I know that it is. But you know, but when you're six and you want to know something, you don't really need to sit at the feet of the Greeks and be led through a maze. However, that is what happened. And, uh, and of course, cybernetics totally influenced all our lives. We had um, we had control rooms in the houses. I mean, we had several houses as we were growing up. This is outlined in the book. But the last one, he had um, little intercoms in each of the bedrooms, and he would control them from his study. So he could contact each of us and tell us what was expected of us or find out what we were doing. Um, and in those days, the technology was... Basically, it was a tin and a piece of string. It was just a bit up from that. And in fact, the intercom in my bedroom, which was at the top of the house next to my studio, um, didn't often work because the squirrels would eat through the wire. But, but I was accused of tampering with it. But you're part of a system, you've got squirrels. <laughs> yeah. No, cybernetics was... Uh, Oh, all the way through. I mean, like like marzipan in a cake. The I remember very early on because because my my mother who who uh, 
it was a curious woman. She, one of the things she did for me was teach me to read when I was very young. So I could read before I got to school and, and unfortunately was therefore very bored at school. But I had this capacity to, to read and daddy used to bring in books for me to read, uh, magazines and, um, say that he never had time to read them and would I read them and let him know if there was anything interesting he should know about. <laughs> so from a, from quite a small girl, I was busily informing myself about cybernetic practices all over the world and able to hold a conversation with an expert who, bless his heart, you know, must have been very tolerant of my take on all of this. I remember very early on copying out the, the calligraphy for, for the cybernetic terms which had come out in whatever magazine he'd given me. I, I thought calligraphy was astonishing. Anyway, yes, well, and and the rest. Well, that's an amazing story. And, you know, I think it comes through so clearly just in your, um, I'm not sure how to describe it. The, the experience that I'm feeling you went through in putting this together, just how you must have been reliving a lot of that and sort of thinking quite cybernetically as you were creating um, this work. Well, I don't want to be blamed for the whole thing because um, Raoul Espero, you know Raoul, he um, he directed me quite cleverly right at the beginning because I took him my early ideas. And Raoul said, um, you must decide if this is a book for the family or for a bigger audience. And how about, so we decided that the, the weaving of stories, you know, the Stafford story, the intellectual story the personal story should all be woven in together at one point i wanted to print them all on different colored pages but it was just too difficult and actual way people can skip over bits if they find it too personal um and so on yeah so yes it, it was certainly i i'm i'm curious about you know um i don't know if you would describe it this way but you know, maybe you, you waited. I don't know if you waited until there was a, a right time to, to do this. Or you said that, you know, you, um, you collaborated. There was some brainstorming. The idea for, for this format, the comic book style format came up. But I, I do find it interesting, um, the timing of the book. Um, you know, the preface is really uh, great. It, it's written um, by an individual, Dr. Martin Fifner, of the... Or Ouroboros Foundation, which I, I kind of went and read a little bit about them. And it looks like they're kind of a consultancy and organization that is really kind of focused on, on you know, um, disintegration and, and, and VSM work. And he says a couple of things in the preface I found interesting. Um, the cry for better leaders is heard these days. And then he says, uh, instead of better people, let's think of better functioning organizations around the people we have. Um, there's another uh, uh, part of the preface. Only now do we realize that our organizations will have to work differently in the 21st century. Stafford Beer was ahead of his time. And as I read these words, I, I just kind of wonder uh, about what really inspires you to bring this now and and feel that hey this is this is really a good time or an ideal time for for people to better understand his work 
and the foundation that um, that Stafford has has laid. Um, just love your thoughts on that. Well, it, it was talking to cyberneticians, of course. Um, people, Marcus Younger was was a critical one for me. He he um, contacted me out of the blue because he'd been doing some remarkable work, and it was all down to Stafford's work. And he said he so wanted to tell Stafford about it. And of course, New Stafford was dead, but but he had a daughter who wasn't. So he he just wanted to chat with me about Stafford, and he told me what he was doing, and I was terribly impressed. And then I went to this conference in Hull, I think, or Leeds, no Leeds Beckett, that's right. And um, people there were sharing the work that they were doing with the VSM, and I was blown away by it. I had no idea that this stuff was going on around the world, and how. And elegantly, it was happening. And of course, the big the big thing about the VSM is that it's almost impossible to misuse. It can't sit on the hat of a dictator because a dictator would be auto- automatically excluded from the functioning of the model. So then, as I found out more and more about its use and about how people were. Um, enabled by it, seriously enabled in some cases. I mean, one one man who uh, shall be nameless actually wept when he told me about discovering the VSM and about how this he recognised immediately that his work was now possible. And that was so moving. That was just fantastic. So when you when you realise that the thing is going well and lots of people should know about it, and that it's a genuinely democratic tool. It's not possible to be anything other than successful in a democracy in, and certainly this integration process. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, everybody should know about it. <laughs> and why don't they? So that was my um, enthusiastic start of the, of the project. Got it. I think that that's, that's super interesting. And I, I think that, you know, you, you definitely make that case, I think that it, it comes across uh, very strongly in in the story that that you present. And again, there's so much to get to. Um, but you know, when you just mentioned the how the models like VSM, for example, just are not uh, at all compatible with you know authoritarianism or dictatorship. It makes me think of your father's work in Chile, and uh, you know the work that. That he did with Allende, um, you know, before uh, everything came to a an abrupt end uh, for that government under the the next regime, um, and so you know we can skip ahead a little little bit maybe and and you know just talk about that and just I, I guess just in the context of what we've what we've seen you know maybe around the world in the last few years even just how we've seen um, some of those tendencies start to kind of arise in 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 pockets you know of course here in the united states uh, as well without getting too political i think that you know that there's certainly been um fear and kind of like a a miss um definitely a a confusion around how how things have kind of uh, bubbled up uh in 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 that in that way and i'm just kind of wondering how how you think about the role of vsm and and other um, principles that uh, your your father um, brought uh, to the world that that could be used today, maybe to um, a, a create a better um, uh, 
you know, political system, govern governance, the way we run our organizations and, and, and so on. Um, love your thoughts on that. Well, it could be used for any of those things, of course. Um, and I think should be, to be honest. Uh, Elena, <clears throat> Dr. Elena Leonard, she wrote a piece many years before Trump explaining how it would be possible for someone with enough money to override America. <laughs> And, and she was the only person that I know of that was interested when he was elected. She was going around saying, Calgary, so. <laughs> it's just quite funny. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't that funny for the people that, whose lives were, were, you know, seriously overturned by his, um, I'm allowed to say this because I'm English. I, I don't have an axe to grind. Yes, you American are. Yep. People, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, yes. So I would like to see. Systems thinking in general applied to, to organizations because, of course, if not, your organization is going to be frail. It's going to be in jeopardy. So let's go back a little bit back, you know, maybe to something kind of prolific. Um, you know, you, you described how every time you'd move, your father would, um, you, you mentioned Socratic method um, in, earlier in the conversation, but he would, he would paint the Greek text of the last words of Socrates on his study walls. Um, That's right. What was it across called? The, I forget what it's called, but, yeah. the, you know, the, uh, across under the ceiling where the ceiling hits the wall. I see, um, yeah. There's a, there's a word for it. And he'd carefully paint out these, you know, every time, every time. It was terribly funny until the last study, of course. I think I mentioned that. But, uh, <clears throat> uh, yes. And, and the point is to, to hold this banner in front of himself. He was an earnest young man, very earnest, very scholarly, very dedicated, very um, commissioned. How, how would you say that? He, he, he knew he was on a mission. I often wonder uh -huh. if he had some sort of prevalence, uh, if, he, if he understood the future better than he had any right to. You know, he, he often predicted things that I couldn't work out how he knew. And he often acknowledged that he'd recognize things when he couldn't have known. And, 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 you know, whether, whether he was a little bit outside of time in some way, but that's a, a mystical thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you describe, I mean, the, the insights that he had at such a young age and the work and, and his um, uh, ascent uh, within the organizations he was working um, at such a young age. I know it, it's it's um, really astounding, you know, very you know brilliant. And I'm also I'm very curious about his, you know, some of his experiences, um, you know, his his time in India. Um, you write about his um his uh, appreciation of, of yoga and alchemy and mysticism. And, and, and I'm very curious about the role that, that those played and, and, and those, those kinds of experiences had in uh, the formation of, of, of his, of his thoughts. And then I found it, you know, very interesting. There, it seemed like the way that you, that you captured it anyway, in the book that when he, re when he read uh, Norbert Wiener in 1950, he had kind of this, aha, I am a cybernetician. It's sort of like all of this stuff that had been going on for him for all of these years and these things, these conclusions that he was um, drawing and these questions he was forming really just kind of had, he had this like aha moment um, when, and everything just kind of clicked. 
So yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Oh yes, I mean I'm, I'm sure you're right. They everything came together then because he um, he viewed his system as a whole. Of course, he, I mean a whole, an entity. He he um, he began as a he was born into a Protestant family, a British Catholic. Sorry, Protestant. I, I don't know enough about Protestantism, but you know standard. British family yeah, yeah. Where, where the Queen is the head of the church or the Archbishop of Canterbury, I don't think anyone really knows. And and it's all about births, marriages and deaths. It's all ritualising rather gracefully um, what what goes on. And when Stafford was at university, he uh, as a boy, you know, in, in Wales, he fell in with the um, Carmelites, I think, a body of monks. Who, who converted him to Catholicism. And he, he told me that this was because he, he believed that one human brain was too small to understand God, of course. You know, you know, this is not likely to be possible. And that the Catholic Church had been for so long arguing and debating and putting stuff together quite rigorously um, within their own contexts. And, and he felt that they probably had as much knowledge as he was likely to be able to get outside of, um, but in those days anyway. So he became a Catholic and was a, a very committed Catholic. Um, but then, of course, he, he discovered in India he'd already um, fallen in with the, the people that he knew in India and was learning more and more about meditation, for instance. He had no trouble applying meditation to Catholicism, um, and I don't think that's particularly unusual nowadays, but he did have some views that were becoming slightly heretical, <laughs> and I think by the time he decided to leave the church, his views had become much more in common with Buddhism, I suppose. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite difficult for me to define which category he slots into, because of course he would cheerfully bridge any gaps that he met. <laughs> Um, but he had a, a very strong spiritual life and a very powerful spiritual presence, you know, if you understand what I mean. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I find it really interesting that, uh, you know, a, a thinker um, such as Stafford, um, you know, it, it's not and especially, you know, where where he ended up taking so much of his work, which is into into management. And, um, you know, as we think about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the subtitle of the book, and I didn't mention this at the beginning, is Big Data Analysis. Um, and, uh, you know, having come from that world myself, um, when I think about big data analysis, um, things like mysticism don't really enter that conversation too frequently in, um, in the Silicon Valley, for example. And so I'm curious about just how that ends up influencing viable systems model, for example, or processes like like integration and and how much a person needs to bring, you know, other ways of 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 knowing and and being kind of into that those kinds of processes and the role that they ought to play as we're tackling problems. And, and it seems like he was thinking about that kind of thing yeah i think you put your finger on it other other ways of being other other what you just said <laughs> you know is is um 
is pretty important. We can't rely on what we have known because look where that's got us. So another kind of thinking and another direction at any time is going to be helpful. And certainly um, working in groups, which seems to be very important, you have to know to respect every person. Each each person has to be mm-hmm. the luminous one. <laughs> so it, I mean, I'm making that up. I've never heard Stafford say that, but I know that the care that he put into everybody who came into his field. Um, he he was the and the man in the street who stopped him. You know, he would be totally focused and totally available to them. So, in in answer to your question, the the business of data is actually about people and mm-hmm. <laughs> they're the ones that de- deserve uh, the, the nourishment and the care that should come through these systems. I'm getting a bit mystical here, aren't I? But, but that's the way I see it. Yeah. I, and I love that. I love that, um, that wisdom. I think that uh, you know it is something that uh, as as we go through this this cycle in um, you know in in this um, in this world of you know data and and, and transactional thinking and um, you know the and we apply you know systems thinking to that and you know if, if we treat um, every person as just simply another piece of data or node in, in the system. Um, you know, certainly uh, things like AI have the ability to look at patterns and, and, and relationships, which are very much, um, you know, systems thinking in orientation. And, uh, but if we can kind of appreciate um, what's really going on in those, in those patterns and those relationships at, at the individual level, that seems like the hard thing for technology, at least right now, to um, to tackle and and understand. So I think bringing this sensibility um, to that work, and you know, if Stafford Beer were alive today, I think he'd be a very you know sought after consultant, you know, here in Silicon Valley at this at this moment in time, given given the way um, he was thinking. Uh, yeah, well, who, who knows? Um, who knows what work he'd be doing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'd just be focused on yoga at, at, at this point. That's what I'd like to be doing. Um, you know, you, you use this um, a very useful visual um, cue uh, throughout the book, and it's a—I'll describe it. It's a—it's a circle, and and in it you write, "New thinking needs new terms." So it seems like every time there was a kind of a development. In um, in Stafford's um, thinking, and where where we needed to, to a new term really there was no good term for it no, no current um, term that we could apply that could quite capture the essence, and so you know when he starts to look at um, things like um, recursivity um, and you know homeostasis not not a not a word he invented of course but just in terms of the, in the application of of those kinds of terms. As we look at at systems, I, I, I found that really, first of all, useful the way that that you you did that and you kind of um, highlighted the thinking and the evolution that that he was going through. Um, 
did you ever, were you ever around for, for those, again, those kinds of moments where, you know, here's this new word that we need to bring into the vernacular and this is the role it's going to play? Well, yes, of course. And, and it was not introduced as a new word. It would be, um, this is a process and I think it's called Dumpty Dum and it's made up of the Greek um, normally. <laughs> Um, yeah. I mean, these things happened all the time. The thing about um, growing up where, uh, with Stafford was that there was no downtime, you know. It was full on constantly from breakfast and whenever we were together. So always there'd be questions and there'd be um, uh, stories. Story. He told stories all the time. They were so funny. And he told jokes all the time. So, yes, I mean, of course I was around when new words were being engendered and uh, they became part of the the family vocabulary. Yeah. I remember uh, me and my um, brother Simon, we were, when we were very young, we were playing spot the system. <laughs> we were trying to work out if things could be identified as system. Was it was a cup and saucer system, I remember, was something that gave us trouble. Uh, but of course, once you engage with the cup and saucer, it becomes part of the system. It must have been very interesting being in the beer household. It sounds very, very different from what most children yeah, experience. Yeah, we didn't know that. You know, we we just grew up like kids do. But my brothers are also um, very interesting men. So it was always very lively and vibrant. And Stafford really encouraged that. You know, he he would preside over the dinner table like a um, a debate, like a chair of a debate. So we'd we'd move round each of the kids, and each would be encouraged subtly to talk about their um, day and what they were doing. And each of us were fairly obsessive about what we did. Um, yeah, it was great. There was a period of time when um, you know this is after after Chile, and you know the various organizations that um, Stafford. Uh, both began as well as you know were were hired into you know he had a very very successful career where it, it seemed like um, he paused and uh, you you talk about him um, spending a lot of time meditating writing poetry uh, painting um, writing um, can you talk about that that time of of his life and you know really what that you know represented um, well it was after Chile as you say which which. Just, I, I, he was so upset. <laughs> I, it didn't destroy him, but it really um, damaged him so much. He liked, he loved AMD. He took to him, you know, mm -hmm. and regarded him as a as a force for change, a force for good. He just adored him. Um, when when that period ended, he questioned absolutely everything. He seemed to um, to find no joy in the world, you know. So he changed his life. He was distressed that he'd lived as a, um, a successful businessman stroke capitalist, although he'd always been very careful. I mean, he didn't use stocks and shares, for instance. He was always within the, the thingy, but he did have all the stuff. Anyway, he sold it all. He put his wife, my stepmother Sally, into a house with her two little ones. The rest of us were pretty much grown up by then. What passes for it? 
and uh, <laughs> uh, he bought this tiny shack, which was very basic. And he set about living on um, the income from his books, which was tiny, but it was it was the old age pension amount. And he decided to live on what was the common uh, income in, in England at that time. So he was very poor. Uh, and that was quite hard because there were overheads left behind with my mother's maintenance and, and other children who, who made demands or had demands made on their part. Uh, plus the two little ones had to be brought out. Plus, plus, you know, there's overheads. You're a father, you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so. Anyway, he he spent a lot of time writing. He he always wrote poetry, by the way, all the time. He he um, he, he talked about Socrates' daemon. The, the you know the the um I don't know what we call it the uh, the demon that guides you, but it's obviously not a demon demon. It's the inspiration yeah, yeah, the daemon, yeah. yeah, you know the term. Um, and he was very much enthralled to that he was he wrote poetry he didn't do downtime as i've said he if nothing else was going on he was pruning a poem or painting a picture he painted all the time as well especially when he was babysitting you know when when he was left with us lot he'd he'd be painting away whilst trying to control the (laughs) the infants (laughs) um yeah he didn't waste any time at all i don't know Sorry, I'm rambling now, but it's just crossed my mind. No, I, don't know, I don't know where he found time to do all the reading that he did do because um, he he seemed to have read absolutely everything. And when I grew up and could talk to him about this, he he was extraordinarily well informed. You know, he had all the basic fiction and everything. But he once said to me rather gloomily, "He said, darling, I don't know how you can bear to read fiction," and <laughs> and yet. And, and there was certainly very little fiction in, in his collection of books, um, which is now at the John Moores University. And what there was was significant, you know. What have you found? Yeah. yeah. So um, I've, I've touched on uh, uh, Syntegration a couple of times, and I, I have a feeling um, many listeners will, will know about Syntegration, have maybe uh, practiced it, uh, used it in, um, in their work. Um, but uh, you know you do a really nice job of kind of describing the mechanics of of disintegration and how and how people were so important to um the the process i i i think i mentioned to you before we started recording that um i was chatting with a colleague recently who was who was thinking about how how can i bring um disintegration online is it is it even possible if i use some um, you know, technology like uh, Miro to do, uh, you know, post-its kind of online. That, it, and is it is it is it possible? I'm I'm curious what Stafford would would, would think of it, uh, because it, it's sort of considered to be such um, embodied work. You've mentioned before his his um, his passion for how like what the individual brings, uh, the person brings to the process. Can you talk a little little bit about disintegration and, and kind of what you saw and, and what was behind that um, when he developed it? Well, the point initially was to arrive at the questions you need to put in the VSM, you know, where, where um, how, how do you make that work? How, how And then, of course, you need to know how to ask the right questions. How do you ask the right questions? You ask your workforce. 
How do you talk to the workforce where everyone has an equal weight? You invent disintegration, <laughs> of course. And I remember meeting with him from somewhere, and he was carrying cocktail sticks and jelly beans, you know, the, the, the way that they make the models. And, um, and happily making these uh, icosahedra, which, which are gorgeous, actually. I had them hanging in my greenhouse in the country once when I was uh, on an art sting in England. And um, uh, have you seen them? The, the, the little like, yes, the cocktail sticks and, and jellies. Well, mine started revolving. And I, I thought, what? You know, what's going on here? And it turned out that wasps had started burrowing into them and were eating the sugar out and making of course. <laughs> Daddy was delighted. <laughs> he came visiting and saw these things in action. Anyway, um, yes, yeah, so he came up with that idea to give an equal voice to everyone. It was a much longer process initially. I mean, nowadays I think people do it in a couple of days or maybe even less because nobody's got any time. But initially it was, I think it was four or five days. And um, and I think I know what he would feel about it being on computer because he was so very keen on people being together. You know, his big maxim was later in the bar. So you sit through conferences, you sit through lectures, you sit through whatever, and then you go to the bar, and that's where people sit and meet and talk. And, and we all know this is the truth. Of course it is. And the point about the disintegration, you're together. You don't even have to be in the bar. You know, you're communicating with one another. And I, I'm sure you guys will come up with some technological trick to make that work, but I don't know what it could possibly be. I know. Yeah. I know we've been forced into, you know, at, at the, the time of this conversation, um, it is uh, middle of June, 2021. Uh, it'll be just a little while before this one uh, gets published on the New Books Network. But, um, you know, we're what, uh, 15 months, 16 months into the COVID-19 pandemic and, and which has shifted um, things. And uh, it really accelerated a lot of what was maybe underway already. You and I are talking here today because of technology, uh, technology that's enabling. I'd love to be in the south of France with you, by the way, uh, in person. Um, but uh, but here we are on this on this platform. Um, so yeah, I, that is a question. You know, generally, I've I, that's been coming to my mind um, is is what he would think um, about today, and uh, you know what what we're dealing with. The role that his work can, could play in 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 dealing with uh, a lot of these big challenges that that we have, not only you know organizationally, uh, you know within within the management context, uh, but but also you know more more broadly, um, you know what your thoughts are uh, on that one. Well, of course, I can't speak for Stafford. Alas, you know, I, I haven't inherited his his amazing brain or his astonishing insights. But uh, what can one say? We all know that um, things ain't getting better. On the other hand, as you say, this pandemic, this lockdown, has caused a great deal more introspection, which can't be bad, and um, and a time for people to start thinking about their role in nature. It, it's clear to anyone who lives even in cities that that once we're all out of the way, Animals start re-emerging, and the birds start flourishing again. And and you know, and and perhaps we've not left it too late to save the planet. 
although everyone says we have, but maybe we could we could pull back now and make things a bit better. And certainly, you know, the petrochemical industry has to be um, ooh, curtailed and uh, new forms of energy um, uh, uh, have to be found to to satiate our, our incredible hunger for, for making, uh, for burning fuel, for, for creating stuff. That's another thing about systems thinking. You see, if children were taught that every time they click a switch or, or uh, activate something, that this has an impact. Most kids don't realize that. This is just makes the light work. This just puts the computer on. But it all has an impact. And you need to be aware that you are accountable for that, although perhaps not accountable. You're, you're responsible for that. Absolutely. You know? you know, and you mentioned early on, you know, the comic book format, which is, you know, historically for, for children, but, you know, has a has a place in on the bookshelves of, of, of adults as, as well. Um, it can be a powerful format for educating and for making concepts um, approachable. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I think everyone loves a, a good story. And what a, what a better way to begin to understand um, something like cybernetics and Stafford Beer's work than, than this, this, this comic book format. Um, you know, well, I, I did intend it as a, as a sort of entry point so that, you know, you can read a page and it's very slight. There's not that much information in there, but you can look it up. You can go online and check out um, La Dida, uh, Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety, for instance. You can you can check out anything you want nowadays, and, and then check your sources. But <laughs> but but I just tried to put in little tasters so that any a student especially could could then source and develop the bits that interest them. Yeah, and and I think it's also at this point really important to um, point out um, that uh, you know uh, for the last um, what twenty years of of Stafford's life he um, was uh, with Elena Leonard, um, who who had become his partner, and they they spent uh, their time I, I I think in my country of origin in, from in Canada and in Toronto specifically, and um, Elena actually contributed. Um, pretty substantially to this book um, by contributing a, um, a wonderful glossary at the, at the end of the book. So to your point around being able to look up some of these, these concepts, you don't have to go too far. You can actually just kind of flip to the end of the book. Yeah, it's a bit of a crib. I mean, when I was at um, Leeds Beckett for this initial conference, somebody told me how many uh, MBA students were anticipated. And I was completely appalled. I mean, it's like a sausage machine. How, how can they be properly trained? So I thought, well, you know, this is the sort of thing that might appeal to someone who's done a, a basic degree and is going to move into management studies. Gives them some route to, to look at Stafford's work and a glossary. You've got to have the glossary. It's vital, isn't it? It's like, um, I mean, I got through my philosophy with, uh, with the, dummy's guide to hegel which 
Hallelujah! You know, without that, I couldn't have gone. That's right. There's not. There's nothing wrong with with the uh, with the dummy with the dummy guides. They they certainly are a great place to to get started. Absolutely. Um, and I, I I don't think of this as a dummy guide. I think this is a, a beautiful uh, a story. Um, and uh, I would highly suggest this this book to you know someone who is you know passionate about systems thinking and cybernetics already, but also for any listener who just wants to pick up um, an, an interesting guide, uh, an interesting sort of introduction to to this work. Um, it, it, I think it actually, uh, you know, in, inspires the imagination to to think about how how it could be applied in in a lot of different ways. Um, as we wrap up the conversation, Vanilla, and it's been wonderful speaking with you today. Um, you know, Stafford has been um, gone for nearly 20 years. Um, you know, he, he, he left us um, in August of 2002. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was a bizarre time as well. Of course, we were, you know, sort of at a different sort of um, <laughs> you know, series of, of crises that had, had been going on uh, with around terrorism and, and uh, you know, the war in Afghanistan and, and so on. So, you know, he, he, he left at a, at a time when uh, there were certainly different crises going on. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm sure he was thinking about how, you know, the role of cybernetics could have been uh, played and maybe preventing some of those 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 things. Um, I, um, I don't have any more questions for you, but I'm curious if there is a question that I have failed to ask you, if I've, if I've missed something, and if there are some parting words that, that you could leave us with. Oh, gosh. Um, I'd like to point out Stafford's influence. I, I've just got the book here. I just flicked it open and found the page where David Bowie has put uh, Stafford's mm-hmm. book as, as his, one of his best books. Um, yes. You see now Bowie and Barney know um, people in that clan had no trouble at all reading Brain of the Sun, which is the one that explains the VSM, and also has a, a, the story of the Chilean coup and Stafford's relationship with Allende and the subsequent um, overthrow of, of his government. Um, and that seems to me to be, if anyone's interested, they should pick up Brain of the Firm. I'm sure it's available. Um, I'm sure. And, and if it's good enough for the likes of Bowie and Eno, then yay, we can all cope. <laughs> well, I think that's incredible. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I do find it very interesting. My, my um, friend and co-host, Tom Schultz, who is also on this channel, he is an actor. He is head of the drama department at the University of British Columbia. And I just find it interesting, this this confluence of, you know, you're an artist, uh, Stafford, uh, he was a poet, he was an artist, he was a you know deep creative thinker. Um, so, you know, this is by no means some mechanistic uh, model, you know, very conservative. I mean, I, I think it's amazing that the likes of Eno and Bowie um, were all over his work. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've loved this conversation. It, it's been uh, wonderful uh, speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time, Vanilla. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Vanilla Beer, author of Stafford Beer, the father of management cybernetics. This is Kevin Lindsay, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Systems and Cybernetics. Till next time, goodbye.